Lord God, I, I, um, I ask that you would give us hearts that delight in Christ, um, that love him, um, that see him for who he is, um, and delight in getting to, to worship and praise him. Um, this morning as we, we look at who Christ is and how we can uh, joyfully give a, a witness to, to his divinity, um, I pray that you'd help us understand this academically, that you'd help us understand the facts and the arguments and, and all those different things, but um, I pray that that would not take away. In fact, I pray that it would enhance our love for Christ and our devotion to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning. Um, so the, I think you saw it in the email, the, the title of this week is Who is Jesus? Um, really, I think it, I almost could have been better just to say, is Jesus God? That's kind of the question we're going to look at a little bit more. However, before we get into that, I do want to uh, just briefly talk about like Jesus historically. Um, so just curious, has anyone heard the phrase historical Jesus before? Or like the title historical Jesus? Michael's heard it. Anybody else? Well, it's kind of like Lee Strobel's book. It's similar. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you can use it in different ways. You can use it in different ways. So, like, one, one way to say the historical Jesus is to say, we want to find the, like, distill down between the myth of the Gospels and find who Jesus was really in history, the basic form of Jesus, without him being the whole son of God nonsense and without the miracles. That's one way you can talk about when you say the historical Jesus. That's not what I'm using this morning. That would be like a whole other apologetics topic. Um, when I'm talking about it, when I say historical Jesus this morning is, did Jesus actually exist? Um, so there are people out there who would claim that Jesus was not actually a historical person, but he's just another mythical figure like Hercules or Krishna that the disciples made up and they decided to go ahead and start this new Jewish cult with. Um, and this is obviously like a pretty dangerous claim to make because if that's true, that doesn't really even matter who Jesus is. Like we don't even need to worry about if he's the son of God because if he's just another made up character, who cares? He can be whoever he wants to be. It has no real grounding or effect on our life. Um, so the question becomes, is it possible to historically prove that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed? Um, quick caveat on that though. Um, it's helpful, I think, when we, when we are asked that question or if we see that question to recognize that basically what that boils down to is, is it possible outside of the Bible to prove that Jesus existed? Because most historians aren't willing to accept the Bible as historical evidence that Jesus existed. Um, they would argue that because the disciples are religious, they obviously have a religious bias, and so they can't be trusted for what they write. I'm going to use that framework um, in, any, in the evidence that I give because that's kind of how they operate. But I would like to point out that that's totally a self-defeating philosophy and doesn't make any sense. Because technically, almost every writer is biased in some way. Um, and so then we wouldn't really be able to account for any historical evidence. And you can even use that argument against them because they are, they are biased against religion. So why should we trust their opinion not to accept these religious documents? So it's kind of a self-defeating philosophy, but it's there. Um, this was not something that I was particularly familiar with. Um, I did want to do just a brief bit of research to see, is this actually something that people believe? Do they really think that Jesus didn't exist? Is this a real argument out there? Um, I think regardless of if it's a real argument, it's still good for us to acknowledge Jesus did exist in history, and we have some good reasons to believe that, both in the Bible and outside the Bible. However, there are people, actually, that have written scholarly documents and would, like even today, uh, pretty hard push 
that Jesus didn't exist. Um, so don't quote me on this because I didn't do very in-depth research, but based off of what I found um, from Google, <laughs> um, it seems like this view that Jesus didn't exist gained popularity in the 19th century. It's like the early 1800s. Uh, and, and I think it's kind of ironic. Two German philosophers, uh, theologians, were the ones that proposed this. So Bruno Bauer and David Strauss. Names aren't super important, but they were the people that kind of started to push for maybe Jesus didn't exist. He's just another mythological figure. It's really died um, in notoriety, so most academic scholars aren't going to, to give that any weight. I think it's still potentially popular among most people, so that could still come up, but most academics aren't going to argue that Jesus didn't exist. However, I did find one person, his name is Raphael Ataster. Um, he's got his uh, PhD from Sydney University. Um, he's published three books in the last 10 years, each of them arguing that Jesus did not exist historically, and that we have good reason to think he did not exist, and he's actually a myth. Um, and he's like very strong pushing for Jesus never existed. So it's still out there. It's really interesting. I think it's dumb. Um, <laughs> I think he's probably a very smart dude, but he's kind of arguing against like what's already like 2,000 years of, of people believing Jesus existed. But it's out there. Um, so, um, if we're given that framework of, tell me outside of the Bible, give me proof that Jesus didn't exist. Do we have anything to work with? We do. So, um, I was given a, a resource, actually Pastor Stephen shared with me a resource from, uh, his, his name is Lawrence Mikatuik, is his name. Uh, he's a Hebrew and Semitic studies professor from Purdue. Um, and he's a specialist in the field at looking at the historicity of particularly the Old Testament, but the Bible as a whole. So he, he writes papers and books on, can we believe that like, stuff in the Old Testament actually happened historically? Is there any evidence? And again, from that historical perspective of give me evidence outside of the Bible. So he provides uh, two different categories of resources that we have that reference Jesus outside of the Bible. Uh, the first category is Greco-Roman. So you've got Greco-Roman historians who are writing about things that are going on in that time. And the second category is Jewish. Uh, I'm going to read just two sources from each of those just so you can get a picture of, of what's out there. Um, so um, one of them is uh, from a, the Greek uh, classical Greco-Roman world. Uh, there's this writer named Lucian of Samosata. As his name, uh, he was writing around uh, 115 to 200, 200 um, after Christ, see, uh, BC or AD. <laughs> he was a Greek uh, satirist, and he liked just to write satire, obviously. Um, but he wrote this piece that's about a um, person who uh, became a Christian and then later loses his faith and like walks away and becomes a philosopher. So it's a piece of satire about Christianity, and this is what he writes. So, quote, it was then that he, so this person who walked away from the faith, learned the marvelous wisdom of the Christians by associating with their priests and scribes in Palestine. And what else? In short order, he made them look like children, for he was a prophet, cult leader, head of the congregation, and everything all by himself. He had interpreted and explained some of their books and wrote many himself. They revered him as a god, used him as a lawgiver, and set him down as a protector. To be sure, after that other whom they still worship, the man who was crucified in Palestine because he in introduced this new cult into the world. For having convinced themselves that they are going to be immortal and live forever, the poor wretches despise death and most even willingly give themselves up. 
Furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods, by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living according to his laws. So I don't know if you caught it. I, I saw so three different times in that little passage he references this like, first lawgiver who was crucified in Palestine um, and introduced this new cult. Um, he talks about them worshiping him, this first lawgiver who is Jesus, persuading them that they're brothers one of another, uh, and then that they worship, worship him and live according to his laws. He doesn't mention the name of Jesus, so we have to take some assumptions and implications there. But the way that he describes this person fits really well within Jesus. And because we know he's talking about Christianity, I think it's very reasonable to say he's talking about Jesus. Um, there's a couple other, there's actually several other sources that like either reference Pontius Pilate or talk about Jesus himself. But that's one from the Greco-Roman world. From a Jewish world, um, a lot of our resources are going to come from Josephus. So I don't know if that's a name you've heard, probably a name you've heard pop up before, Jewish priest. Um, and he's got actually a couple different resources where he mentions the name of Jesus. Um, the one that um, is kind of basic, but still I think worth mentioning is in his book, Jewish, Jewish sorry, uh, Antiquities. And this is what he says, quote, being, being therefore this kind of person, Ananus, thinking that he had a favorable opportunity because Festus had died and Albinus was still on his way, called a meeting, literally Sanhedrin, of judges and brought it into the brought it into into it the brother of Jesus who was called Messiah, James by name, and some others. He made the accusation that they had transgressed the law and handed them over to be stoned. It was, it's kind of an interesting source because he mentions G, James. Um, and then he mentions this person, Jesus, who is called Messiah. Um, and what uh, Lawrence makes note of in this passage is, um, it's interesting that Josephus tries to make sure he's clarifying who this Jesus was. Jesus was not particularly an uncommon name, and neither was James. And so you see him referencing James and qualifying James as the brother of this Jesus, and he's qualifying Jesus as the Jesus who is called the Messiah. So the, what you can take from that is it's likely he's expecting his audience to know who he's talking about based off of those qualifiers. Um, he's not like making up somebody. He's, he's using some, some qualifiers to clarify who he's talking about with the hopes that they'll understand who this Jesus is. Josephus was himself not a believer. Um, he was actually a pretty strong Jew um, and loved Judaism, but he at least recognized that Jesus was called the Messiah. Outside of like so, outside of some of those Jewish sources, I think it's also helpful to note that um, that those that the Jews and their polemics against the church, uh, they don't usually argue that Jesus didn't existed. Um, they they had strong reason to hate the church as as a Jewish kind of cult and as a separation from Judaism, and they could have just easily squashed it by saying you have made up this person. But they don't. They actually almost always assume Jesus did exist. So then what they would do is they would reinterpret his, um, his actions and his words. They would twist his words or so that he wasn't actually born of a virgin. So they, they were attacking his life and his events, but not his existence. Um, I think it's worth noting that that, that happened. Um, so I think just in the sources that I've read, but uh, in, in general, the, the sources that we can get outside of the Bible... Um, 
affirm like, a couple of things that we would say from the Bible. So they can affirm that Jesus existed as a man, um, that his personal name was Jesus, um, that he was called Christos in Greek, so they called him the Messiah, and that he had a brother named James, um, that he like, won over both Jews and Greeks, uh, that the Jews didn't like him, that the Jewish leaders of the day didn't think very highly of him, um, that Pilate rendered the decision that he should be crucified, so that was actually from a source that I didn't read, um, and that his execution was specifically crucifixion. Um, so looking at some of these outside sources, it's actually pretty cool how many of the important parts of him that we can affirm. Um, they're not going to have the same religious undertones that we have in Scripture, so they're not calling him God or saying that he is the Messiah, but they are at least affirming that Christians, who we call ourselves, like we're, we're affirming those things, and um, I think that's pretty neat. So there is good reason. We do have sources outside of the, outside of the Bible that say that, that Jesus is God. So I think if, if someone were to come to us and say, you know, prove to me that Jesus existed, um, depending upon how that conversation goes and who the person is, it would be helpful to try to frame it as and, and show them that it's not a good framework to just be looking for extra biblical sources. Um, it would be great to be able to take some of those with the Bible um, show how the Bible is a faithful witness and, and really use a lot of what Scripture says. But if they're unwilling to even accept that, a place to start, we do have some places from Josephus and some other Rome, uh, Greco-Roman sources to, to point to. Jesus at least existed. And then you have to wrestle with how do we come to a faithful understanding of who Jesus actually was. Any questions um, on that? We're going to transition down to is Jesus the Son of God? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Thank you for answering that. We can all go home now. Um, <laughs> we'll get some coffee and, and wait for church, church to start. Um, yeah, any questions on the historicity of Jesus? Is there, do you, did you come across, is there any sort of... I'd just be curious if there's some kind of statistics on modern-day historians and what percentage do believe that Jesus was real? You know, I mean, because I, I have the sense that it's most. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, most would, would acknowledge his know, humanity. But. So it's that's the hard part about doing your research on Google is you can kind of find whatever <laughs> answer you're looking for if you really want to. I did I did try to look for are there any serious academics today who believe that Jesus didn't exist? In? That's how I came up with this guy Raphael Latastor. However, it was pretty interesting because. Like the first 10 results, all of them said no serious scholars today uh, consider that Jesus didn't exist. This guy, Latastor, tried to argue that they do and that these people who say don't are not actually experts in their field and so we shouldn't, shouldn't care about their opinion, which is a classic move to do if you're trying to undercut like, the mainstream opinion. Um, so I think you could probably, um, I, think, I think it's most of them. I didn't find a number. Um, but can you remind me? I forgot. When did Josephus write hmm. Antiquities? Yes, yes, he wrote. Did I not write this down? I'm sure I could Google that too. You could, yeah. You probably that's probably best. I believe it was either. I think it was like late, the late first century, or uh, early second century. So around the same time as some of the other the Greek sources. End of the first century, around the year 100. There you go. According to Google, so I mean, we can acknowledge that's still seventy years after Jesus existed. Um, but you would have to—I think we have to. Would 
from the counter perspective, somebody would have to come to us with good evidence that over those 70 years, we had now had this myth that like Jesus existed. Uh, it's very possible. There's still people that were alive at that point who were around the time of Jesus. And so I don't think it's very likely that um, you know, within those 70 years, we now have this myth of Jesus and it's still around. But you might have somebody who could argue that and try to say, well, that's just too long. Um, it's a tough argument. I mean, compared in antiquity, seventy years is a short amount of time. Yeah, really short. So, and I think it has like this undercurrent of modern uh, superiority and arrogance. It's almost like so you really think somebody is like somebody who claims to be a historian in the first century is going to be okay with writing about this person who might be a myth, as if they didn't care what history was and they weren't trying to be accurate. Like they were. He's not going to. Um, they're just not going to include those details or pretend that they're myth, especially if what they're writing is history. Like they're trying to write accurate accounts of what happened, not a new mythological account of what happened. Um, yeah, and Luke's writings, especially in the book of Acts, shows that he was an excellent historian. Mm. There have been historians, non-Christian ones, who have tried to disprove Luke mm. through his, you know, researching his history and mm. then have converted. Really? Yeah, I mean, so like in terms of historical accuracy, Luke is spot on. It's clear that, you know, but it is different. I mean, like the gospel writers, when they wrote histories back then, they were obsessed with chronology. Mm. They were more focused on theme. Mm. So they're excellent his historical writers. I think that probably the more likely argument we're going to get is that Jesus just isn't who he claimed to be. Yeah. Less likely to get the Jesus isn't even real. Yeah. He's a total myth. I think it's harder to argue that because of these extra biblical sources and so forth. And I, I do think that, that it's probably accurate to say that most people don't deny he existed. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're going to take an anti-supernatural bias and say things like he was just a man or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. I think too, I'm not sure if I've got all this right, but I remember reading the Lee Strobel book. Yeah. And he and he was, as you know, a, a columnist for the Chicago Trib, and he was trying to disprove mm -hmm. Jesus. And he, he comes up with a, several more historical um, uh, proofs. Yeah. And it's really kind of a worthwhile book to read because he convinced himself of the opposite. Mm -hmm. He was trying to say Jesus didn't exist but he converted to Jesus at the end. Yeah. And it's really well written. And it would be a book that you could recommend to a non-believer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and the way that that book is written is like, it kind of addresses a lot of the main, major objections. Mm -hmm. He didn't just focus on one topic, which, which is helpful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think the real battleground on this issue is what does scripture actually say about who Jesus is and how we ought to understand it? Because there isn't a lot of other resources outside of that. And I don't think you can look at any historical documents we have and come up with much of who Jesus was. It's, do you believe what the Bible says? Or do you believe that the Bible is trustworthy? And then, what do you believe about what the Bible says? I think is the, is the, um, where the real work needs to be done. It's uh, a great way to frame, it's a great way to frame it hmm. as two separate issues. Mm -hmm. First, do you believe the Bible is trustworthy? Mm -hmm. That is not the same thing as saying, do you believe the Bible? Yeah. Huh? Like, do you believe the Bible is trustworthy in the sense of, like, we 
we have good manuscript evidence, mm -hmm. we can trust that, you know, all these different arguments. Then mm -hmm. once you say, like, yeah, okay, like, so this is what they actually wrote, then you have to answer the second question that you framed. What do we, do, we, do you believe it? Yeah. Do you, what do we do with what they said? Mm -hmm. So that's great. I like that. It's a good framing. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's, it's helpful. Um, and it helps me this morning because we've already talked a lot about is the Bible trustworthy? So I'm not feeling the need to reprove that now and then talk about what does Jesus say. We're just going to look at what does the Bible say about Jesus. So the, the first claim that I think we've debunked a little bit is Jesus never existed. Um, he was not a real person. He was a mythological figure. We're saying he is a real figure. And so now we have to wrestle with who is Jesus and who did he claim to be? So the, the non-Christian claim would be Jesus existed, but he was just another great teacher. Outside of his maybe moral and philosophical superiority to us, he was nothing more than a human, just like we are. Um, we shouldn't think anything special about him. Um, there's, I think, a lot of different ways someone could come to that conclusion. Um, it could be just outright denial at the Bible. Like, I think that if we're using those two things, they could just say, I don't trust the Bible, so I think Jesus was just another human. Or they could say, I do think the Bible is true, but I don't really see a lot of evidence here that the Bible actually said that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, for this morning, I'm kind of focusing more on that second one. Of, I trust the Bible, but I think if you really read it, it's, it's not claiming that Jesus was the Son of God. That was kind of a later addition. Um, I do think as, you, as we talk about some of those arguments, you'll see that they don't really trust the Bible because they think that it's been manipulated, but they would at least claim that they, they think the Bible is a trustworthy source. Maybe not inspired scripture, but they think it's trustworthy and they think it doesn't testify that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to start with looking at why we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and we'll touch on some of those objections at the end and see if they hold up to, to what we've already talked about. So I, um, I have four reasons we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they're really more overarching categories. So the first one is that um, Old Testament prophecy points to a Messiah who is divine. Uh, if we read the Old Testament and we read it clearly, we should expect and would see that there's going to be a Messiah who's coming and he's going to be the Son of God. The second reason is that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, understood himself to be the Son of God, um, and this kind of ties well with the Old Testament one because he's constantly pointing back to the Old Testament and, and referencing it to say that he is God. Third, um, which we will mostly touch on briefly, is Jesus rose again. Um, so we have Paul telling us that he was declared to be the Son of God when he resurrected. So we believe because he's resurrected that he is the Son of God. And then lastly, um, the disciples in early church believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They preached that Jesus was the Son of God, um, and ultimately many of them died because they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. So, first category um, is that the Old Testament prophecy um, points to a Messiah who is going expected to be God um, or the Son of God. What I'm not saying is that the Jews expected the Messiah to be the Son of God. Um, in fact, I think the Gospels test testify to the fact that they didn't, and they were pretty confused when Jesus started saying that. But uh, I am saying that if we read the Old Testament, um, there's, there's many different things that point to a Messiah who's going to be divine. The Old Testament was pointing to that from the beginning. A couple, oh, you have something to say? I just said oh. So a couple different passages that, that point to that. Um, one of them is Psalm or Psalms 110, 1 through 4. Um, so this is the passage where, where David's writing about 
the coming Messiah, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That passage is actually quoted a couple of different times in the New Testament. One of them, the one that jumped out to me originally, was the very bottom where it talks about you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, that comes up in Hebrews referencing Christ. So this, this was a passage that I think was understood to be talking about the Messiah. Um, and Jesus uses it to stump the Pharisees in Matthew because he brings it up and says, like, you think the, the Messiah is coming. Now, why does David call him his Lord? Uh, and they, they couldn't make sense of that. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Um, so you've, you've kind of got this sense that where like the Jesus is the, both the, I think what I've got written down here is both the root. Yeah, the root and the descendant of David. Like he's going to be a descendant of David, but he's also like before David and the Lord of David. How, how is that possible? Well, it's possible if he's God and if he is the source of David. Another passage is Isaiah 7, 14. Yeah, uh, so, sorry, the New Testament okay. author also quote that passage a lot or allude to it a lot when it mm. talks about Jesus being seated seated at the right mm. hand of God so it's just another way that they yeah. reference that passage because like we talked about last mm. time the exaltation of Jesus Christ is as you're going to say point three proof of his sonship yeah. so they didn't just point to yes mm. they pointed to it as the Lord said to my Lord they also pointed to it a lot, multiple times, hmm. as he has been seated at God's right hand. Hmm. And sorry, just adding a little. That's good, and we're gonna we're gonna see more of that actually as we yeah. keep going because there's there's more of that in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, but this is a different one. Isaiah seven fourteen. Um, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that, Pretty explicit. Like we've got this son who's coming. His name is going to be Emmanuel. Um, just a few chapters later, um, in Isaiah 9, we've got, Isaiah is also talking more about this coming son. And he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Very famous passage. We, we sing about it and talk about it a lot in Christmas time. What's interesting about this Isaiah one is um, you could have someone argue, and probably someone who's very familiar with scripture, that the Messiah is he's supposed to be this coming king, and then this like, divine figure who's coming, they're separate. Um, so you don't like they're almost two different people. This passage in Isaiah shows that that's, shows us that that's not the case because we have this child who's coming, um, and he's called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Like he's called the names that we would refer to like Jehovah as. But then uh, he's also this person who's coming on the throne of David, um, and he's going to rule over the kingdom of David, which was the traditional understanding of the Messiah. So we're seeing this merging of this divine person and the coming Messiah, one person. Um, got both of those categories referring to him. 
Another passage, uh, and this is going to come up again later, uh, Daniel 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came to me one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we don't necessarily have, um, like it doesn't use the term Messiah here, but again we've got this idea that there's this person like a son of man, so this human, coming, um, and he's going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom over everything, which would be a little bit confusing because Jews are very clear and understand that God is the one who rules everything and is over everything. So, but there's this man who's being given dominion. So I think that would have potentially caused some confusion or what that's actually talking about. But we've got things again, once again, stuff that's um, genuinely understood to belong to this title of Messiah, but then we've also got some divine aspects of there as well. Um, and then last but not least, Micah 5.2, um, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, you uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, the Messiah, who is coming forth, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Um, so I'm thinking of that little tag there, from of old, from ancient of days. I'm not, I don't know Hebrew, so I don't know exactly what that's saying or how you would have to interpret that precisely, but um, you've got this person who's like, you could say maybe that's it's been predicted from ancient of days, or he's like actually coming from ancient of days. He is the ancient of days. Um, there's there's some something being referred to there that is more than just a typical human who's coming. So that's the Old Testament. Uh, from the Old Testament, we have reason to believe that there's this Messiah who's coming, who's going to be divine, who is going to be, um, who is going to be God. Um, not necessarily the Son of God, but God. So then the question is, did Jesus claim to be God? Um, did he actually think that he was God? Did he teach that he was God? And did he expect the disciples to then go out and teach that he was God? The answer is yes, but it's helpful first to, to recognize um, it's not entirely in the way that we would expect. So from a modern perspective, we hope we would hope that the Gospels are just filled with Jesus saying, I am God, I am the Son of God, I am divine. Just be, be clear and straight and to the point. And we would, we would get that right away. Behold, your Messiah has come. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then, and he, you, you won't find that. Like if you're reading through the Gospels hoping for explicit, from our perspective, explicit references that Jesus is the Son of God, you're not going to find that. What you will find, though, are explicit references to the being the Son of God from a Jewish audience perspective. From an ancient perspective, the Gospels are littered with him directly saying, I am the Son of God. And I think, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit, but I think one way we can see that is because that's, there's, there's passages in the Gospels that show that that's what his audience understood. And some of the times when they get most angry with him are when they see him claiming divineness, um, claiming to be God, and they're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him. Um, so they, they understood. Uh, so I think if we were in, if, if we had that perspective and we, re, we were reading the Gospels, we'd be like, whoa, like, there, he said he's the God there, he said he's God there. Um, but we can. Um, and, and, and here are some of the things, ways in which he does that. 
Um, so the very maybe the most explicit that we would understand just immediately from the context is him using the sacred name of God, I am. So in John eight fifty seven through 59, um, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And, and they got really angry with him at that point, because he's, he's claiming the name that's reserved only for Yahweh on himself. Um, another way Jesus claims to be the Son of God um, is by referring to God as Father. Um, so he, he uses that over a hundred times in the gospel. Um, and, and while it wasn't uncommon at that time to, for the Jews to understand God maybe as their collective father, like he's the father of Israel, um, you've got that passage in Hosea where it says, out of Egypt I called my son, which is actually later fulfilled by Jesus. But um, like in that moment he's talking about Israel. Um, it, it wouldn't have made sense for them to, to talk about God as the personal father and relate to him as the personal father in the way Jesus did. It's a little bit different in the way that he talks to God, the way that he references God, um, that that refer- use of fathers is a bit different. Um, it it's causes us pause to question. Um, and I think the Jews understood this and it angered them. So once again, John 15, 18, uh, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they understood that his reference as God as father wasn't just kind of this innocuous general, he's all of our father. It was specific, um, and it angered them. This is going to be a little bit more rapid fire, but uh, there's also things that Jesus claimed about himself that um, were characteristics or abilities that would have been understood as only applying to God. And so by claiming those upon himself, he was claiming divinity, though somewhat indirectly. So, for example, um, in the Gospels, Jesus claims to be omnipresent. He claims to be omnipotent, omniscient. He claims to have power over both the physical, uh, both physical and spiritual death. He claims to have power over his own death. He claims to forgive sin. Um, which, that, again, is another thing that angered the Pharisees because, like, how can you forgive sin? You're not God. And he's like, well, actually, I am. Um, and, like, that, that's reserved for God. He's claiming it on himself. Um, he claims to be the source of all life. He claims to be the only way to the Father. Um, he claims to be worthy uh, to be worshipped, um, which is, I think, especially a blasphemous thing. If, if God is the only one who's to be worshipped, and here you have this man claiming to be worshipped, Either he's claiming to be a different God or he's claiming to be God. Um, He says that prayer should be made in his name. Uh, He claims to be one with the Father. Uh, He claims to be sinless, eternal. Um, His words are equal in authority with the Old Testament. Um, That he he comes to fulfill the precepts and promises of the Old Testament. Um, That to accept him leads to salvation and that to deny him leads to damnation. And that the Father is going to share his glory with Jesus. And that he could be identified with the great I am name for Jehovah, which we've already seen. Um, that he alone could give peace and rest to those who put their trust in him. That he was greater than the temple and the Sabbath. And that he would come to be the final judge of all men. Um, I said that too fast, probably for you to write it down. I can share these notes later. And actually, there's an article that I got this from, um, from a professor at Liberty University. Um, and it, it's actually got all the different references. So you could go up and look those later and see like, where is Jesus claiming this. But all of those things... Honestly, if you just had one of them, it would be caused a question like, why are you claiming to be omnipotent? Like, only God is omnipotent. But this was, like, 
almost 20 items that he claims to, to have and be that are pretty much attributes reserved only for God. Um, and either he's crazy or he thinks that he's God and he's trying to communicate that he is God. Um, and then the last thing um, is uh, one of the, the most common phrases that's used for Jesus and that Jesus uses for himself is the phrase son of man. Um, so it appears uh, 81 times uh, in the Gospels, uh, 30 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 25 in Luke, 12 in John. Um, and of those 81 times, Jesus uses that to refer to himself 69 times. So there's like 12 times that it's either quoted from scripture or someone else calls him that. 69 times he refers to himself as that. Um, the reason I highlight that is because we're focusing on what did Jesus say about himself. So I think it's important to see that he very clearly was referring to himself as the son of man. It doesn't initially point us to, well, he's God. I, I, like, honestly, when I would have read that before, I would have just thought, oh, he's trying to underscore his humanity. Or like he's the representative of humanity, the, the new Adam, the son of man. And that might be part of what he's doing. In fact, I think it's likely that that's part of what's going on. But um, if you remember that passage I read in Daniel, uh, so I'm going to read that again. Where it says, um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, the son of, like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This passage that's talking about the Messiah, and seems to be talking about a divine Messiah, Jesus is quoting and invoking that on himself when he calls himself the son of man. And I'm not, I'm not just guessing that he does that. He does. Um, and the reason I can say that is because uh, when Jesus is uh, at the end of his life, he's brought before the council of Jews. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote him as using that passage uh, in his response to the council. Um, I think the... So I'm not going to read all three. Um, but the one that's a little bit longer um, is in Matthew, so it's just got a few more details. So this is Matthew 26, 63 through 65. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he, had utter, he has uttered blasphemy. What further do, witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Mark and Luke give pretty much the exact same account with just a few details that are slightly different. Um, some of the wording is different. Um, so the, the question I have with this passage is, why was Jesus called a blasphemer? Like what actually angered the, the high priest enough to say he has committed blasphemy? It wasn't that he claimed to be a messiah. There had been other Jewish messiahs, quote unquote, before, other people that had claimed to be a messiah. Um, and maybe they had received varying degrees of support from the priests, but they weren't condemned as blasphemers. The reason Jesus was condemned as a blasphemer, blasphemer, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the reason he committed blasphemy was because he claimed to be God. And he was invoking divineness on him, on himself. Uh, and that, that angered the high priest, and that's why they delivered him up. So Jesus was killed not because he claimed to be a Messiah, but because he claimed to be the Son of God. 
Um, and they understood that because of the way in which he used that passage in reference to himself. And I love that interplay where we, we see the Old Testament confirmed in Jesus and also Jesus using the Old Testament in a way to confirm himself and, and who he is as pointing to and illustrating who he is. This is after the fact, um, but I think still worth noting. Um, in the book of Revelation, um, verses one, or chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, um, this is the start of John's visions. Um, I'd like to, to read to you what he writes. He writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining, sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Um, it's a beautiful passage. I include that because, once again, you have this Son of Man language used, um, referencing Jesus, also referencing Daniel. Um, I apologize, I didn't write down the, the reference, but this, use, this uh, verse 14 where he says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Um, that's also a description that's also used of God the Father. I think it's in Daniel, um, but I didn't write the reference. So you've got, like, he's already kind of pointing to this is, this is God. Uh, and then it's very explicit. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, a phrase only used for God. Um, and if there's any question that we're talking about Jesus, like this could just be somebody else, or is this an angel? In verse um, 18, he says, uh, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. That could be somebody else, but like we have, it's Jesus. He's talking, that's Jesus who's speaking. Um, he is the one who died and now lives and has the death to keys to the keys to to death and Hades. So, um, I think that just further support that it's right for us to understand this son of man language is pointing to Jesus as God. That's, it's, it's a phrase that's, that's often used. Um, that's what I've got for Jesus claiming to be the son of God. Then we have Jesus rising from the dead. So, Romans says that that, that was where he was declared to be the son of God in power. I think there's lots of things going on in the resurrection that prove that Jesus is the Son of God. At a minimum, his resurrection is the vindication and validation of everything he claimed about himself. So like we just have all this evidence of him claiming to be the Son of God. He dies. He rises again. That's like greater reason for us to trust everything he's claimed about himself. Notwithstanding the passages in Scripture and the Old Testament that are fulfilled through his resurrection um, and the, the implications that Paul takes away from it. Um, we spent the last two weeks talking about that, so I'm not going to talk about it again. But just as a quick summary, uh, the, the overarching framework that we used, uh, that I used in the first week, was that it's reasonable for us to believe that he resurrected because we know he died, we know he was buried, that his tomb was empty, and that the disciples believed that he had risen again and, and saw him. Um, and so if, if all of that is true, we have good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then like, that could almost stand on its own and just say Jesus is the Son of God because of that from, from what Paul writes. And that then leads to our last 
um, kind of category of, of why we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that's because the disciples and early church believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, a little bit of, of rapid-fire passages. I'm going to start with Paul. So Paul, all over the place, um, writes that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, in Titus 2.13, he says, he writes, uh, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 5 through 7, he says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In Colossians 1, 19, he says, For in him, him referring to Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, and similarly, in Colossians 2.9, he says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then in Colossians um, 1.15-17, it's actually Colossians is littered with, with references. It says, that The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in that passage in particular, both calling Jesus the image of the invisible God and also associating him with the creator, who um, Jews would have said that the creator is God. He is the creator of everything. And now you're calling Jesus the one who's created everything through him, for him, um, because of him. And then the last one from Paul is Philippians, or that I, I have here. It's Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Um, so this is right after the Philippians 2, 5 through 7 passage. Uh, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that one doesn't necessarily say directly that Jesus is God, but it really mirrors pretty closely Isaiah 45, 22 through 23, which says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By, my swell, by myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness. Uh, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee should bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So you've got God saying in Isaiah, to me everyone's going to swear allegiance and bow. And then you got Paul, who was very familiar with the Old Testament, claiming, yes, but everyone knee is going to bow and confess to the name of Jesus. Um, very clearly associating Jesus with, with God, even though he doesn't say that explicitly in Philippians 2, 2, 2 9 through 11. And then the second disciple that I, I wanted to include was Peter. Um, two passages. Um, so first, in his own writing, um, he does a very similar thing to Paul. Um, so in 2 Peter uh, 1, 1, uh, he writes, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God our Savior, God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So same phrase, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then actually, um, going back in time just a little bit, um, Matthew, um, in Matthew 16, uh, records this interaction between Jesus and the disciples. I'm sure you're familiar with it. This is verses 13 through 20. Um, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, um, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So notice that use of the Son of Man. 
Um, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, um, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So actually, a lot going on in that passage. Um, Jesus is using that phrase, son of man, to refer to himself. Uh, but you got Peter saying, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, and Jesus affirming that. So this could almost also go in Jesus saying, like, I am the son of God. He's, he's accepting that. He didn't rebuke Peter. Um, but like that, that's what Peter believed. Um, and Jesus blesses him for that. So you've got two examples of two disciples, not all of them, but at least two um, we have writing. They, they believe Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, I think that it's really hard to read Acts and not think that that's also the case, uh, both in the way that we have some of their explicit written out sermons, but also like, that's what the church was proclaiming. That's what the church was spreading. And it wasn't some other doctrine. It was Jesus, the, the, the God-man. So, um, summarizing or just reminding, so those, those four categories, the Old Testament's prophecy, Jesus claiming to be God, the resurrection, and then the disciples' belief. All of those are, are reasons why we today um, believe that, that Jesus is God. Um, and all of those are, are grounded in Scripture. So you've got the Old Testament, you've got Jesus' talking about himself in the Gospels, his resurrection, and then we have the disciples both understanding, let's say interpreting, but kind of understanding, interpreting what happened there and proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God, and here are the implications of that for us in our faith. So in the time we have remaining, um, I would like to, to discuss a counterpoint, counterclaim argument to, to this belief that Jesus um, is the Son of God. Um, has anyone heard of the name Bart Ehrman before? Yes. Heard that. Okay. Um, so he, I, I had not heard, heard of his name or heard of him before. Um, preparing for this. Um, pretty famous scholar, uh, used to be a Christian, um, and after 30 years of study, decided that he didn't believe it anymore. Um, and in particular, uh, he doesn't believe, that, he believes that Jesus existed, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and so I, I listened to like a little interview. Uh, he's written a book, uh, a pretty famous book, it looks like, called How Jesus Became God. Um, and that, that book is trying to argue historically how the disciples came in after the fact and tried, made up, in a sense, that Jesus was God, and then they started this whole church movement um, based off of that. I wanted to understand what his argument was, um, and so listen to this interview, and this is not his full argument, I haven't read the book, but I, I noticed like five kind of key things that he's using in support of his belief that Jesus is not the Son of God. So the first thing he claims is that um, the Romans crucified Jesus because he was the king of the Jews. Um, the, the Jews and Jesus would have understood that to be a, a mortal man who's coming to be the new king. And so it doesn't really make sense. that That's what he was crucified for. So why are we making a big deal about it? Um, Jesus did see himself as the Messiah, but Jews at that time thought that was just the future king. So, that, so Jesus then wouldn't have thought himself to be God. Um, he would have just understood himself to be the coming king. And when Jesus is coming, we're talking about the kingdom. He just thinks that this coming kingdom is coming, that this kingdom is coming, and that God's going to make me the king out of all of it. 
but I'm still going to be human. I'm not actually God. Um, so that's, that was the second point. Um, Bart Ehrman also claims that Jesus never calls himself God uh, and that his disciples did not understand him to be God. Um, he says the only gospel that includes an explicit reference of Jesus being God is John. Um, and he argues that um, we shouldn't trust the gospel of John, and that's actually just a theological interpretation of what happened rather than a historical account of what happened. Um, so he has this framework that he, 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 come, he came up with called, or that he, he thinks is, is like a, almost a progression of Christian belief about who Jesus is. Um, so he, he, he divides, it, divides it into two different categories, exaltation Christology and incarnation Christology. So exaltation Christology he defines as you know, Christ was exalted or made God at a couple of different key events, and he became God. Started out as man, became God, or incarnation Christology, where um, Jesus is God and he becomes, becomes man. And he's arguing that uh, if you look at the Gospels, you can see this progression of how the, the early church um, developed their theology. So he thinks it starts with, they thought Jesus was the Son of God, uh, became the Son of God at the resurrection. He provides no sources for that. He just says that's what the early church believed. He then says, if you look at John, which is supposed to be the earliest gospel, we have Jesus being made the son of God at baptism. And then if you work, move on to Matthew and Luke, they must have been developing their theology and they decide, well, actually he was made the son of God at birth. So they, had, they made up, or they added this story of him being born of a virgin. And then if you look at John, he's now the preexistent son of God, the word, who becomes, um, who becomes man. So he thinks he can trace this like little progression in the gospels of, of how Jesus is uh, Godhood becomes bigger and bigger as it goes. Um, his fourth point um, is that there were lots of beliefs at that time about divine humans um, and like God people, and so the Christians just co-opted some of those key key ones and, and made it about Jesus. So that the three key stories he provides are a human being being made God, um, a, a, a human being um, being born through the union of God and a human woman and then a divine being who has temporarily uh, made a human being. And then last and probably least, uh, his fifth point is that uh, the Christians started calling Jesus God right around the same time that the Romans called their emperor God. So it was really a political move just trying to fight between the two of them. I think these are all terrible arguments. <laughs> uh, honestly, it was actually, I, so I, it is my goal like in listening to people and, and listening to arguments against Christianity to not think of them as dumb or stupid. Like, it's not like I'm, um, and it, in a sense we've been enlightened, but it's only because the Spirit of God has worked in our hearts. Like we're not any better. However, I was completely unimpressed with his arguments and it seemed like he was just pulling stuff out of thin air. And it was, it was crazy. Like it did not seem very well thought out or smart. Uh, and um, I think the only way you could come away from what his arguments were and agree with him is if you've never read the Bible. If you read the Bible, what he says doesn't make sense. So I'd like to go through each of these five and show you what I mean by that. So the first one, he says, actually, I apologize. Let me take a step back. Uh, he does also, he doesn't believe the resurrection happened. Um, so he is also like, he just, he doesn't think it happened. And so because of that, it makes sense. He doesn't believe that Jesus is God from that. So I'm not wanting to ignore that, but I think we've already addressed that the last couple of weeks. But that is a factor. It's not like he thinks Jesus rose again and he still doesn't think he's God. He just outright denies it. Um, so first point. Well, the Romans crucified Jesus because he was the king of the Jews. He thought he was the king of the Jews, not the son of God. 
And that's somewhat true, but I think he's missing it because the question is not why did the Romans kill Jesus? It's why did the Jews give up Jesus to be killed? The reason the Jews gave up Jesus to be killed was because they, he claimed to be the Son of God and they hated him for it. If you read the Gospel, and the Gospel accounts make that pretty clear, that it was ultimately the Jews who wanted Jesus killed, not the Romans. The Romans really had no problem with him until the Jews brought him. And then Pilate, scrambling and trying to figure out what to do, the best way he can justify killing Jesus, who's done nothing, is to accuse him of calling himself the king of the Jews. Um, and Jesus does deny that, and so he's, he's able to be crucified. But it's not really that important why the, Jew, the Romans killed him. It's why did the Jews kill him? Jews kill him. Um, well, okay, fine, but Jesus called himself the Messiah, but the Jews didn't understand the Old Testament as talking about a divine Messiah. Um, and actually, so there's a couple things happening at both of these points, uh, verses one, uh, points one and two. So Bart Ehrman is claiming that because that we need to take what the Jews understood of the Messiah and apply it to Jesus and then assume that Jesus understood that very same thing. And that's because of what the, the classical understanding of the Messiah was, that's what Jesus believed himself to be. Um, the problems with that are we've already seen that Old Testament prophecy points to a divine Messiah. Uh, and the Gospels themselves repeatedly point to the fact that the Jews didn't understand this that Jesus was continually confusing them with the ways that he was taking Old Testament prophecy and scripture and applying it to himself. In fact, even the disciples didn't fully understand it until the resurrection and Jesus comes back and he makes it all clear and plain to them. So we're already seeing that like, if we just take the Old Testament, it didn't seem like the Jews had a very great understanding of their own scripture, or at least it wasn't clear to them. On top of that, we just, you, need, you can't just say because this group of people believed it, Jesus did as well. Like that's a, a, a pretty large gap of inference there. You have to be able to prove that he thought of himself in the same way that the Jews did. He, we don't, and in fact, we actually have documentation that he didn't because the Gospels are repeatedly pointing out that Jesus is correcting their understanding and that his, his belief and understanding differs from, from the Jewish community. And again, that's part of why they killed him. And that's part of why they couldn't stand him. Um, so you would think that if his understanding of the Messiah and of the Old Testament was the same, they would have had no problem with him. In fact, he would have been a great buddy, and they, like, it would have been fine. It wasn't. They actually gave him up to be killed. I almost don't even want to address the point that Jesus never called himself to be God, because it's just so, like, I don't know where he comes up with that. It doesn't feel like he is understanding the source material very well. But we've already seen lots of places in all four Gospels where Jesus is, is claimed to, to be divine and he claims to be divine. Um, kind of regarding this process of Jesus being made God at the resurrection and then the baptism and then being born the Son of God and then, well, he's the pre-existent Son of God. I don't know where he gets the early church believing that Jesus was made the Son of God at the resurrection. He provides no sources. We don't have any documentation of that. I don't know where that's coming from other than guessing. Um, I think he gets that because he believes that the apostles hallucinated and saw Jesus, and like they must have made him the Son of God from that. But I, I don't know. Just, there's no document. We have no reason to believe that. That's totally guesswork. Um, and then if you look at Mark, uh, Mark one one says does not say that God made Jesus his son at baptism. He just declared that he's the Son of God at baptism. Which, that kind of indicates that he already is at that point. But I just don't know where Bart Ehrman is saying, well, well early Christians believe that he was made the son of God of baptism. That's, that's not happening there. Um, yes, Matthew, Luke, and John. Like, yes, Matt, Mark starts with the baptism. So 
I think it's reasonable to ask questions of like, why do Matthew and Luke and John give a little bit of a different account? Why did they have these different details at the beginning? But it doesn't mean that like Mark is telling a completely different story. And I think actually that was a great point uh, regarding like, how they understood history. It was a lot of thematics. It's this theme, not necessarily chronology. Mark has a specific theme and point that he's trying to get across, and you'll see that repeatedly. Matthew and Luke have similar similar themes, but they each have their own focus that they're going for. Same with John. So that affects the stories that they, they include and in, in the stories that they leave out and the way that they tell those stories. I don't know, I think it's once again guesswork to say that we have this progression and build up of a, a building mythological story. Um, some way, I think I think Bart Ehrman has to prove that that's happening, and he didn't. It's just kind of conjecture and assumptions, um, and it's something you almost have to do if you don't. If you're starting with the presupposition that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and that um, he's not God, um, you're, then it's really easy to go from there to uh, the disciples making up this this developing story. Uh, point number. So his point number four of them co-opting the existing beliefs about di- divine humans. Um, so he says, well, they just co-opted the belief that a human being could be made God. Like, that's not what Orthodox Christianity holds to. We've never believed that Jesus became God. It was, he was God. So that's, he's almost using his own assumption that that's what the early church believed to then say, well, then that's what the early church believed. You can't do that. You've got to show that that's what they thought. Um, him being born of the union between God and a human woman. Um, we do have that. But it's a little bit different because in the, for example, Greek and Roman myths at the time, they make it pretty explicit and clear that this conception, like the conception of, let's just use Hercules, for example, is actually like the physical union between a god who temporarily becomes human and a human woman. That's not the story we have with Mary. It's like there's this, this spiritual conception that's happening, but it's, it's a different nature. It's not the same type of story. So even if there are some similarities that we can recognize, um, there are telling a different story. It's not the same, and it's not what we would expect. Um, you know, Jesus is not just a human being who's got like, divine qualities because his father is a god or is god. He's, um, he's a human being with like a divine nature. Like, he's now two different. He's both god and man in one. You don't have that quite that same story happening in the Greek and Roman myths. Um, it's different. Um, so it's not just a co-opting of the story, even though there's similarities. It wasn't a copy and paste. Uh, and then the last one, similar with the first, uh, this claim that Jesus is just a divine being who temporarily became a human being. Once again, uh, Orthodox Christianity doesn't hold to that. Uh, we believe that Jesus' humanity uh, was not and is not temporary. Um, it's permanent. That's, that happened permanently in the incarnation. How all that works, we don't necessarily understand. And there is a degree, and we talked a little bit about this last week, how his, his body now is different. Um, than his human body was on earth because he's got the, the spiritual body that we're going to have one day. Um, but he didn't stop being fully God and fully man. He's, he remains that way always. So once again, very different story. Um, it's not just a copy and paste. And then um, the last, and again, I think this one's a terrible, maybe even the least of the arguments, but the, the Christians calling Jesus God right around the same time as the Romans calling their emperors gods. I don't know where he gets that. He didn't provide any sources um, and it doesn't quite make sense historically because um, Jesus was alive and died around the time of the reign of Tiberius, who was technically the second emperor, but the third after Julius Caesar. 
um, from what I remember of Roman history and of what I saw um, with a quick Google search, um, they started calling the emperor's gods around the time of Augustus, who was the first official, um, like Caesar. So that's happening actually before Jesus is even on the scene. So I guess you could argue that they started calling Jesus God as like a political thing against the existing Roman gods and their emperors, but to say that it was happening at the same time isn't true. Like that doesn't make sense. And also, um, at least at its beginning, Christianity was not a political movement, it was a religious movement. It does become, it does get tangled in politics later when you have Constantine making Christianity the official religion of Rome, but that's quite a bit later. Um, and it's not like Jesus was suddenly started being called God around the time of Constantine. So It's confusing cause and effect. Yeah. Because, like, one of the most highly political statements that Christians made at, in, in that world hmm. is Jesus is Lord. Hmm. That was a political statement. Yep. They weren't making it because it was political. Right. They were right. making it because it's true, and it was political because of the environment in which they, the context in which they lived. Mm. It wasn't political because, because they s- said it. Yeah. It was. Be- they had already claimed that Caesar is Lord. The Christians were saying, "No, mm. there's only one Lord. Mm-hmm. Jesus is Lord," and it was the Romans who were making that political. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because uh, if it was a political in origin, it was a terrible political move. The point is, is that he's confusing yeah. cause and effect. Like, yeah. the, like the fact that they said that, and the fact that it was taken as a political statement, doesn't mean they said it because, mm-hmm. for that reason. That's good. Like that, that's you have to prove that they that they were saying it for that reason. Mm-hmm. It's more likely, far more likely, based on the evidence that we have, that they were saying it because they believed it was true. Yeah. The fact that it was taken as political is secondary. Mm-hmm. You, you know, does it make sense? Yeah, like, it does. It has it implications does. politically, just like it has implications politically today mm-hmm. to say Jesus is Lord. The government is not God. Jesus is God. Jesus mm-hmm. is Lord. It's still a political statement. Yeah. But we're not saying it because we're trying to make a political statement. Right. We're just saying it because that's what we believe is true. Mm-hmm. So he's confusing cause and effect. It's a fallacy. He has to show that that's the reason that why. Was, yeah. Right. And there's, there's no, there's no there's evidence, evidence that. that that was what was happening. Yeah. So I think when you look at that argument, it just, it just doesn't stand. Um, any of those arguments. So this was kind of interesting because I, I went into this somewhat expecting and hoping that there would be like a, a pretty reasonable argument that Jesus isn't God. Partially because we've got so many people that don't believe that Jesus is God, and especially in America, where people are very familiar with who Jesus is, familiar with that Christianity is out there, lots of people just outright denying it. I was kind of hoping there'd be a more compelling argument that he isn't God. Um, and there really isn't. <laughs> like, I think when you look at the, the holistic evidence that's out there, there's some questions. There's some confusing things. Like you still have things, you still have to wrestle with why are the four gospels um, like why are there different parts in the story? And like I can understand that would confuse someone, and there's some questions there. But um, I just don't know how you could look at the entirety of the evidence that Jesus existed, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, um, like the, the history of the church, and not come away with the belief that he he is the Son of God, or at least claim to be. And then you have to 
again, look at, do you trust it? Do you trust that this word's true? Do you trust that he rose from the dead? Um, so I, I, I don't know. I was, I was interested in that. Um, I don't think there really is a great argument that stands um, outside of do you believe or do you, do you not believe? Um, so I think as we, as we, from an apologetical standpoint and engaging with people, I don't know if I've got a, a great framework or, or necessarily this is the, the way to do it, but I think as we get to those points and we talk about evidence of people, it, it would be helpful to begin asking questions and try to drill down to why don't they believe. Um, I think it's very possible, at least from the get-go, that they're going to have some questions or they're going to have evidence that they're looking for. But I, I wonder if that's actually the cover of like, hey, I'm going to start with, well, there's just no evidence for it. But there's deeper things, whether that's sin in their life they don't want to give up, whether that's things that have been done to them. There might be a variety of reasons, but um, the foundation of evidence doesn't seem to stand very well. Um, but we're going to be fighting against emotions, we're going to be fighting against spiritual powers, and we're going to be fighting against um, non-argumentable reasons of, of unbelief. Um, that's going to take more time, that's going to take more patience. But to get through that first potential first layer, I think we have a lot at our disposal to, to talk through. Um, <coughs> that's what I have for my notes. Any thoughts or questions? It'd be fun to talk about Lewis's trilemma sometimes. Sometime. I'm actually not familiar with that. Oh, have you guys heard of Lewis's trilemma? So he takes like this information that you've just given, mm -hmm. and he he says he makes this argument that you can, based on what Jesus claimed for himself, you know, mm -hmm. based on what there's, you can't say you cannot conclude. Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. Mm. Like, oh, he's a good yeah. guy. He's a good dude. Like, based on what he claimed, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, <laughs> or he is the Lord. Amen. Like, he's he's a liar. He's a devil. You know, like, you can't... He's just making it all up. Lewis then goes and says, like, well, no. He's, all the witness to his character shows he's not a liar. Mm. Uh, well, was he crazy... No, his teaching shows that he wasn't crazy. Mm. He's not insane. So that's the argument that Lewis yeah. makes. You have to, but what he doesn't leave open, what Jesus does manifestly does not leave open as an option is, he's just a good human moral teacher. Yeah. He doesn't leave that option open because he's saying, "I'm God." Yeah. Because of all those claims. Now, you might say, "Well, they." There's another option, the legendary option, yeah. right? So liar, Lewis doesn't argue this, but liar, lunatic, legend, yeah. or lord. But you already addressed this legend piece. Yeah. The this the. <laughs> isn't that something too? Like I struggle with it. Like isn't it with Muslims they believe kind of more of that legend thing or something? Because it's like they believe like Jesus was a great prophet. Well, how can you say he's this great prophet? Their argument is going to be that the Bible is corrupted and you can't trust it. So they're 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 going to go that route, or they're going to go the route that he didn't really claim to be God. So happy to have him as a prophet, don't want to have him as God. 
which from what I've heard from just a few people is like that that's one of the challenges uh, big challenges of evangelizing with, with Muslims is like the reason they don't be- they believe that scripture is corrupt is because that's what Muhammad and the Quran teaches but it's like there's no real they're not looking at it from an evidential or historical standpoint so it's like it's kind of hard to prove to them that the Bible is not corrupt because it would you have to because it goes against the Quran uh, so it's difficult yeah Anyway, we'll we, maybe yeah. come back to that some other time. Yes. Some other time we should pray. Yes, we should. Jesus, you are Lord, um, and we submit to you. We believe and are thankful that you are the Son of God who has come to save us and to reign. Um, please help us to submit to you um, and to faithfully and joyfully proclaim your Lordship to those around us. Um, amen. Thank amen. you very much. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you.